0: You're tuned into 90.7 FM KALX Berkeley. My name is Eric Sathy, and this is The Graduates, the interview talk show where we talk to UC graduate students about their work here on campus and around the world. Today I'm joined by Caitlin Gaynor from the Department of Environmental Science, Policy, and Management, who studies human wildlife coexistence. Hi, Caitlin. Hi, Eric. So how did you get into research in the first place?
1: So I think I've always been into research, whether or not I knew it. I used to think that science research was test tubes and lab experiments and dealing with things you couldn't see. But I was involved uh, in what was research in my backyard, uh, growing up outside and playing around and solving puzzles and just making observations about the way that the world worked. And that, you know, led me eventually as an undergraduate to get more formally involved in research. And I've been doing it for the last decade.
0: So were you one of those kids who was always playing in the mud, flipping logs, looking for animals underneath?
1: Oh, absolutely. Yes.
0: (laughs) So I see on your CV that you did research as an undergraduate. Do you want to talk a little bit about that?
1: Yeah. So I was a science major. I studied environmental biology and biological anthropology, so the study of the human species as a species. And I wanted to get more research experience. And so I just asked a professor one day if I could volunteer in their lab. And I said yes. And I got started with my very first research position uh, actually in a primate cognition lab studying primates and how they think.
0: That sounds really interesting. Is that sort of what attracted you to that professor in the first place, this primate cognition...
1: Yeah. As a human, I think I am just innately interested in other primates because they're so similar to us in so many ways and yet also very foreign and different. And I think that kind of tension I found fascinating and I wanted to know more about them and what was going on in their minds. So the very first project that I worked on was with a graduate student studying actually metacognition, which is how much knowledge one has about their own knowledge, which sounds more complicated than it is. It's just the ability to look at your memory and say, yeah, I I think I'm pretty sure about that. And so the monkeys are pretty good at that too. We would show them pictures of different objects and then wait a little while and then ask them through interactive computer screens how certain they were that they had seen a given image before. And they were really good at it. They would wager chips that would then translate into how many banana candies they got at the end.
0: Wow. So these monkeys were gambling on whether or not they remembered something.
1: They were, and they were good at it.
0: So is this a pretty typical way to study primate cognition?
1: It is, yes. A lot of these experiments on primate cognition are done in the laboratory, and so that was my first experience was with captive animals. And I did it for a little while, but for a bunch of reasons. I mean, for one, it it just—it really— made me a little sad to be working with monkeys that were living in cages and uh, I wanted to know more about how these behaviors and how this knowledge evolved in the environments where the species live in the wild and so that kind of led me into field research and I've been working out of the lab and in the field ever since.
0: So you've been traveling doing field work. Mm -hmm. Uh, Where have you been with your research?
1: So, my early experiences as an undergrad took me to Brazil, where I was studying Titi monkeys. And then I did an undergraduate thesis on blue monkeys in Western Kenya, in the rainforests of Kenya. Uh, I did a thesis project on vigilance behavior, so scanning the environment on the functions of this behavior in monkeys and found that these are highly social species that are scanning their environment constantly, not just for dangers from predators, from eagles and snakes, but from other monkeys. So you find that low-ranking monkeys exhibit this scanning behavior uh, much more frequently because they're always looking over their shoulder for their friend who's going to steal their food.
0: Sure. What's it like to do fieldwork in Kenya?
1: It was amazing. I actually ended up going back there for a full year after I finished my undergraduate and oh, wow. managing the research project that I had participated in as an undergraduate. So needless to say, I really loved it. It was primitive conditions. I was living in a cabin in the rainforest and we would have to collect the water from our roof that we then used to bathe and to cook our food. Uh, And, you know, the toilet was a pit in the backyard. And so, you know, wake up in the middle of the night in the pouring rain and decide how much you really had to use the bathroom. But by day, I was living my Jane Goodall fantasies and following around monkeys on foot. Uh, learned the names of 200 different monkeys, and just really got involved in the soap opera of their lives.
0: Did you notice some personalities in the monkeys?
1: Absolutely. Do you want to <laughs> talk
0: a little bit about that?
1: There were monkeys that were that were divas and that would insist that everyone else groom them and would never return the favor. And, and then there were monkeys that it often was correlated with social rank, which was just inherited from their mothers, and monkeys that were just really low-ranking that would try and eat as quickly as they could before someone else kicked them out of the tree that they were in, just to be a jerk, basically. But yeah, I, I got very, very invested in their personal lives and their the drama of who was fighting with who and
0: It's like a reality TV it, it show. It definitely
1: um, was. <laughs>
0: that sounds great. And did you see any gambling in the field monkeys?
1: That's a very good question. I think you know, was, the work that we were doing in the lab was so artificial that They're not self-assessing their knowledge in quite the same formulaic way, but these monkeys had an incredible knowledge about the environment that they lived in. They knew exactly which trees were fruiting and what the most efficient way to get from one tree to another was at a different time of day. And they definitely were assessing each other's knowledge, Mm -hmm. too. They could understand what another monkey had seen and use that information to make decisions about what they wanted to do.
0: Wow. That sounds really interesting. Okay, so you've been to Kenya, you've done field work in Kenya, and you watched these monkeys doing reality TV show things. How did you get from doing field work in Kenya to Berkeley?
1: As a field researcher in Kenya, I was. Supposedly studying these animals in their natural environment and trying to understand their behavior in the environments in which they evolved. But the monkeys that I was watching were digging around in garbage pits and living in plantations of artificially planted trees. And I just realized that how transformed their habitats had been by people. And... I think that was actually made it even more fascinating to me was to see how these animals were changing their behavior to respond to these human alterations and to be able to coexist with people. Uh, I was also just really fascinated into the trouble that they got themselves into sneaking into people's houses and stealing food and using electrical lines to walk on and getting electrocuted. And I decided that I wanted to study that. I wanted to actually embrace the fact that these animals are living in a very rapidly changing world and to understand to what extent they can and can't change their behavior to live alongside humans. And so that's what brought me to Berkeley. I had previously done very what we call basic or pure research where we're just really focusing on uh, learning about these ecosystems and these animals to understand scientific principles and to understand what drives the patterns that we see. And I became interested in how we can use this knowledge to inform conservation of these animals and and their habitats and to improve the lives of people that are living alongside these animals. And so at UC Berkeley, I'm in the College of Natural Resources, which is a very applied college where we're focused on solving environmental problems in the world and using research to inform conservation. So that's what I'm doing now.
0: That sounds amazing. Do you think that humans and wildlife get along? Well, I think
1: it's or... complicated. It's complicated. <laughs> it would be the basic relationship okay. status between humans and animals. Sure, <laughs> sure. It's complicated. I think there are a lot of winners and losers in the Anthropocene, this era of in which the planet is being altered by, by humans. Certain animals have been able to adapt and take advantage of resources that humans provide and kind of do their own thing and not really get in people's way. Other animals are failing to adapt and going extinct as a result. And then there are animals that are adapting, but maybe in ways that are undesirable for people. Elephants that are raiding crops and mountain lions that are eating people's livestock. And so there's definitely a lot of tension.
0: Do you have any examples of these that some of our listeners might be familiar with in the immediate area?
1: Yeah. So I work in Mendocino County on mountain lions and coyotes and their impacts on livestock. And I know in the Bay Area, people do keep livestock. People also have small pets and are out hiking in the mountains. And generally, we're very safe from carnivores. But you do get them coming in at night and eating pets and and livestock. And I think another common example is is deer. Deer populations are pretty high around the country and causing conflict with people in many different ways.
0: So what are some consequences for humans and animals living in the same place?
1: This is actually a focus of my research, has been trying to understand the behavioral changes of animals that are living alongside people. Very often we see complete spatial avoidance of human areas by large mammals in particular where when people are present in an area the animal will just choose to go elsewhere. But you know as the human footprint is expanding across the planet, people are taking up more and more space and there's less habitat available that's, you know, untouched by human activity. Animals are having to adjust in other ways and so I've been exploring shifts in not space, but in time of the time of activity by animals in response to people. Humans are a diurnal species. Humans are largely active during the daytime. And so I've been trying to quantify global patterns in an shift towards nocturnal activity by large mammals that are trying to avoid coming into contact with people. And so I compiled data from 57 large mammal species from all continents around the world to try and understand the extent to which animals were becoming more nocturnal around people. And what I found was really compelling across carnivores and herbivores, animals small as rabbits to large as elephants, and in response to human activities from something like hiking, which we don't really think of as that disruptive, uh, all the way up to hunting and to drilling for oil and high-density urban settlement, all of these activities are making animals more nocturnal.
0: Obviously, some of these activities are more conflicting than others. Are there ways that animals and humans can coexist in peace?
1: Yeah, I think one way to interpret this increase in nocturnal activity is sort of a a doom and gloom, another way in which people are messing up the natural world. And you can see it that way and you can really document some negative consequences of changes in behavior for animals that maybe are not as efficient at finding their food or avoiding their predators at the night if they've evolved to be active during the day. But in response to your question about coexistence, I do see this shift towards nocturnal activity as a mechanism for coexistence between humans and wildlife. We want certain animals to be active when we're not active so that we're avoiding negative encounters with them. And so for animals that maybe are too afraid to be around people during the day, this could provide an avenue. If they can adapt and they do have this kind of behavioral plasticity, we call it, the ability to change their behavior in response to changing environmental contexts. they can live alongside us.
0: So what consequences does nocturnality have for some animals that might not be so good at being active in the dark.
1: It could be, uh, you know, a step on the path to localized extinction if they're just not as good at finding food and their reproduction might decrease, their survival might decrease if they become more vulnerable to predators. So we might see this happening. We don't really have documented cases of it yet. On the other hand, we might see these animals actually evolve. We have seen that humans have caused changes in evolution of the species that we hunt through a kind of artificial selection for certain traits. We're changing actual adaptations of these animals so that they can avoid being hunted or we're selecting for certain traits that, you know, large antlers or large tusks in the case of elephants and ivory, which is causing changes in these populations. And I think that behavioral shifts may also generate indirectly evolutionary adaptations to human activity.
0: To your knowledge, are there any animals that are really benefiting from the presence of humans?
1: Yes. I think certain species have been winners in human-dominated societies. I'm sure just look around the Bay Area at what wildlife we're seeing in these densely populated urban areas. Pigeons and raccoons and coyotes, animals that have a lot of behavioral flexibility or that are taking advantage in some way of habitat that humans are creating for them. I don't think it is the majority of species. I think it's a select few species that have kind of lucked out in that their adaptations allow them to flourish in human-altered landscapes. But we're definitely seeing a a very different suite of species than we would in in natural habitats.
0: And with a species like pigeons, it's very clear how they're benefiting from human presence. You know, you walk down the fisherman's wharf and you see them eating french fries off the street and you see them perching on the sides of buildings. And it seems like in some species, the benefits might not be so obvious, like maybe the coyote.
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think... The coyote, it's it's maybe a little bit more indirect in that humans have, have removed a lot of the top competitors and even predators of coyotes, so like the wolf is being an example, and have opened up new spaces for them to exist. And, and they're very smart and have very flexible behavioral strategies. And so it's a little bit less direct. You know, We do provide coyotes with food in the form of, of sheep, whether we want to or not. I mean, I think we usually don't want to. But yeah, in addition to just direct resource provisioning and habitat provisioning, like you're talking about, the manipulation of predators and competitors is is enabling the success of certain species.
0: Are there other things that you want to talk about in regards to your research?
1: As I've mentioned, carnivores are returning to California in really great numbers, and and I think this is having tremendous impacts not only on humans, because we're coexisting with them, but on their prey. And so I'm conducting research in Mendocino County on deer behavior and trying to understand how deer are changing their behavior in response to an increased risk from predators. So greater numbers of mountain lions and wolves that typically deer haven't had to worry too much about, which is why their population numbers have exploded. And so I am focusing on how deer balance this kind of increasing risk from natural predators with all of these actual risks from humans you know from hunting uh, but perceived risk from humans as well deer can be fearful of people that are just going about and hiking and driving and so my research in mendocino is focused on understanding how deer navigate this landscape of fear we call it from multiple predators and risks
0: and one thing i've heard about deer is that they really like edges of forests to my understanding and with roads and other means of development, we've sort of fragmented the forests, Mm -hmm. and in doing so, we've created a lot of edges for the forests. And so a lot of times we'll find them Right. Near the roads, because that's where the edge of the forest is.
1: Yeah, and that can, of course, cause problems when deer are near roads and people are driving down roads. And I'm sure everyone has a story or has heard a story of someone hitting a deer with their vehicle. We have deer vehicle collisions all the time happening. And yeah, it brings them into greater contact with people with the possibilities of transmitting Lyme disease, which is prevalent in California. And so. Yes, it's kind of this feedback where humans are influencing changes in animal behavior and habitat use, which is then coming back to influence humans.
0: And so you said that this is a global thing that you've been working on. We've been mostly talking about examples here in the Bay Area. But have you gone other places other than Kenya to do this kind of work?
1: Yes, I started out actually at graduate school, I really wanted to get back to Africa to do more of my research. And that's part of what brought me into the group where I'm working uh, with now. I work with Dr. Justin Brucheres, who's done a lot of work in Africa on wildlife ecology and human wildlife coexistence and interactions. And so I started a field project in in Mozambique in Gorongosa National Park, which is a national park in the center of the country that was really devastated by Mozambique's decades-long civil war. It was the epicenter of a lot of the fighting and the Pulled out for the rebel army and. of the large mammals in this protected area, which was once considered a flagship conservation area for the continent, were wiped out. And so we ended up with 10% or even fewer for some species of the number of animals that existed prior to the war. And so since the mid-1990s, these populations have been growing very rapidly and very successfully due to some really concerted conservation efforts by people on the ground. And with that, we have a growing human population that is thriving now after a war that really devastated people as well. And so my research in Mozambique has focused on what these growing wildlife populations and growing human populations how they're affecting each other and how their coexistence uh, might look in the future.
0: Do you notice similarities between the coexistence in Mozambique and Kenya and here?
1: Yeah, I think people always ask me, you know, you work in Africa and you work in California. Those are like halfway around the world from each other. How does this fit into one person's dissertation? And I think there are far more similarities. I think even just on the surface, they're both savanna ecosystems that are highly seasonal with this wet season and dry season. And you have human populations growing in both of these places and wildlife populations growing. And so you see a lot of the same kind of tensions and conversations. I think attitudes towards wildlife are really diverse across all types of people. And I see very similar attitudes and values towards animals in Mozambique as I do in California, uh, which is to say some people love animals and just love looking at them and studying them. And other people love hunting them. And other people really hate them because they're uh, interrupting their, their livelihoods and they're a threat to safety. And there are people that want to conserve them. And so I think bringing these diversity of voices together in the conservation conversations in both of these places has been really eye-opening for me and helping me understand. I think everywhere you go, people are people, uh, and we have really similar relationships and diverse relationships with animals.
0: And you said that you mostly work on large mammals, uh, and I'm thinking about the large mammals here in California. Coyote is probably one of the bigger ones, and then I think about some of the larger mammals in Africa, and what comes to mind to me is an elephant or a giraffe, and how does that play into the dynamics with humans?
1: Yeah, I think something that you know we often forget here in California is that we've gotten rid of a lot of the largest animals that are the greatest threat to us. We don't live alongside mastodons and really giant carnivores that are a constant threat to our survival. But people in Africa do. And I've experienced this firsthand. I had my truck crushed by an elephant while I was out in the field. Wow. (laughs) Um, Yeah. And I'm here to tell the story. (laughs) Can
0: you tell a little bit more about that? That sounds fascinating. Yeah,
1: it was was terrifying. So the (laughs) elephant population that I at the site where I work in Africa. um, They're very traumatized by the Civil War. They experienced high degrees of poaching. People were trying to get the ivory to help fund the conflict and also just to hunt elephants for their meat. And elephants have very long lives and elephants never forget, uh, as the saying goes, and they teach each other. And so what the elephants have taught each other in this system is that humans are terrifying and that they should be afraid of them. And I found myself driving along and turned a corner in a really thickly forested area and found myself in a group of elephants that normally spends their time pretty far away from the roads and isn't used to seeing vehicles and people because they're actively avoiding people. I stopped my truck quickly, and there was a very small elephant just on the side of the road, a baby. And it was probably the worst place to have stopped because I I didn't see the baby there. But all of the mother elephants and aunts and grandma knew that that baby was there and that I was way too close. And so I I was pretty quickly charged and uh, had the front of my truck beaten up by these elephants. And luckily I was able to get away and... And thank goodness my, my truck started, the engine still worked, it was dripping things, and I couldn't drive it very far, but I drove it far enough to get away from the group. And um, yeah, it really, I, I've always respected those animals, but it gave me an, a new new level of respect for of them. Of course,
0: of <laughs> course. Well, that's really exciting.
1: Yeah, in retrospect.
0: <laughs> in retrospect, of course. And so one thing that you just said there was that the elephants are communicating with each other and telling each other about humans. And I think you said something along those lines with the monkeys as well. Mm -hmm. Can you talk about that? Are there other sort of behavioral similarities that you see there?
1: Yeah, I, I wish I don't study animal communication, but it has always fascinated me. We don't really understand how these animals are talking to each other. I think species like monkeys that are more closely related to us, we can see it in their interactions with each other, the ways that they're communicating and their facial expressions because they're similar to our own. But there are so many species out there that primarily communicate through scent. And we can't really smell compared to so many other species out there and so i think there's this whole world of communication uh, and signs and signals that are going on that we really know nothing about and that's fascinating to me i think we're very limited as these bipedal primates that are active during the day and really rely very heavily on our vision we can't really understand what it's like to be other species.
0: Yeah. Okay. So we've been talking a little bit about your work in in Mozambique and I kind of want to bring it back to California. I'm curious. So California has some really great national parks, um, has a number of national parks, Mm -hmm. and it's a great place for people to go out and go hiking and see what kind of wildlife might be out there. Do you have anything that you can talk about in regards to how people interact with animals in national parks?
1: I think uh, as national parks are becoming more and more visited, there are positives and, and negatives of that. I think that it's really great that more and more people are getting access to these beautiful places and to the outdoors. On the flip side, it's putting a lot more pressure on these ecosystems, which are really fragile and which we're, you know, protecting for a reason, and especially a pressure on, on the animal species that are present. And so, you know, I think. Common sense is don't get too close to animals. Take a few pictures and then leave them alone and let them go about their lives and be mindful about that. But you know, I think there there are incredible opportunities in national parks, but also outside of national parks to view wildlife. I think we're at a moment now where wildlife is recovering in the state. There's a lot more wildlife-friendly policy in the state of California that's enabling the return of especially large carnivores to the state. Uh, We've got our first wolves. But as these wildlife populations are, are growing, I think we need to be always mindful of the impacts that our activities have on them. I think one person is not having a huge impact, but the cumulative impact of all of the visitors to these parks, yeah, it can can have impacts on these animals.
0: We've talked a lot about mammals. Do you know anything about any of the other groups? You know, maybe some people might be really into lizards or salamanders. or
1: Right. I definitely have a large mammal bias. I will readily admit that. I think as a large mammal myself, I am more interested in other large mammals just because I see myself in them. I I think that the impacts of human activity on animals like lizards or, or other species are happen at, at different scales. I think that those animals that are smaller-bodied tend to be very affected by changes in habitat that are caused by human activity, both habitat quality, fragmentation, and just the amount of habitat available for them. But I'm sure there are also behavioral changes, which is the focus of my research specifically, is is an understanding behavioral responses of animals to human activity. But it's really open out there for people to study. I think fewer people have looked at changes in behavior of non-mammalian species. Some work has been done on birds, but it's definitely an avenue for inquiry as human activity is increasing everywhere.
0: Sure. And I know with birds, there's been a lot of issues with really clear Mm -hmm. windows or light pollution from cities will often change sort of...
1: Right. Yeah, so that's I think that is actually a good example of cases where humans are changing the environment and animals are perhaps not changing their behavior in response to humans. Or they have these sort of innate fixed responses to certain cues in their environment, like sea turtles that are looking for moonlight when they emerge from their nests to go out into the ocean and are instead following the lights of condos and ending up on the highway. This is a case where the animals lack this behavioral plasticity or this ability to kind of learn and adapt to new changes in their surroundings because they're really hardwired to just respond to cues and then people, whether we know it or not, are really changing these environmental cues that animals rely on to make decisions.
0: And so it seems like what we can do as people is to sort of respect these animals and try and learn something about them, be aware of some of these innate, hardwired behaviors that they have and keep those in mind when we behave in a certain way.
1: Uh, Yeah, I think we often don't understand the impacts that our activities have until it's really having dramatic changes for animals. And luckily I'm seeing a trend in, in greater research and attention being paid to these issues and a lot of conservation activities are focused on trying to mitigate the effects of human activity on wildlife by trying to change their behavior or to help preserve behaviors that that existed in the natural habitat.
0: Do you have any suggestions about how someone might get into this field, how someone might start doing research in a field similar to yours?
1: Yeah, I think there are many ways, you know, from people that are, are students in Elementary school, high school, undergraduate, there are great opportunities for people. I think the thing to do is just ask. If someone is doing something cool that you're excited about, ask them. And chances are they'll they'll be excited to talk to you about it and, if not, help you get directly involved in their work, be able to direct you to resources. I think, you know, for people that are not in school, there are still really great citizen science opportunities. In fact, I I work with citizen scientists on my projects both in California and in Africa. I work at the University of California's Research and Extension Center up in Hopland in Mendocino County, uh, which is regularly having events for the public, but also engaging in volunteer citizen scientists. And so I work with citizen scientists all the time, and I'm always eager for new volunteers to help me with sample collection. Often that entails walking around the landscape, looking for deer poop, which doesn't sound is that fun, but trust me, it's really fun. Um, And my work in in Mozambique involves a citizen science project hosted on the Zooniverse platform. And I would recommend people check out Zooniverse. It's a a platform where anyone with access to the internet and a computer can actually help process data for all different kinds of research projects, uh, really spanning the range of of the scientific disciplines. In particular, my project, it's called Wildcam Gorongosa. And at wildcamgorongosa.org, people People can sort through camera trap photos. These are photos taken by cameras that I have put out in the national park that are triggered by motion. Uh, And I have millions of pictures of animals that I can't possibly go through myself. And so with just a little bit of training on the website, people can immediately start to help classify animals in my pictures. And so... That's a very selfish plug, but for people willing to help me out with my research, I would recommend going there. Of
0: course, yeah, and people love looking at pictures of animals. It's so fun. Yeah, what are some of the um, magnificent animals that you've seen in in the cameras? I'm sure you've seen some really interesting animals as well as behaviors.
1: Mhm. Yeah, I think a lot of it what we see is baboons. There are just so many baboons in this in this park. It's always really exciting when I see really rare species like the eland, the largest antelope in in Africa, which I've never seen in person, but it will show up on these cameras, and otherwise it's like a unicorn. I wouldn't wouldn't believe that it existed there, <laughs> but, but it's there. And as for interesting behaviors, yeah, the elephants are just incredibly curious about these cameras, which often doesn't end well for the cameras. They will investigate them. You'll see them notice the camera and then just come right at it, and then you'll see just pictures of the inside of an elephant's trunk, and then the next photos will be of the sky because the elephant will have knocked the camera down onto the ground. and (laughs) Then I won't have any more data after that. But they're really fascinated by anything that shouldn't be in their habitat. So
0: what do these cameras look like uh, if the elephants are noticing them, but maybe not all animals are noticing them?
1: They're relatively small. Um, You know, there's something that I can just hold easily in your hands. And I put them into steel boxes that are camouflaged generally with the trees. And so other animals... We'll notice them a bit, especially if if I've handled it recently. They might notice my smell on them. But for whatever reason, don't necessarily perceive them as a threat. I think animals all over the world are becoming more and more used to seeing weird things that people put in their habitat, whether they're fences or roads. And so, you know, they'll investigate it. And once they assess it as not being a threat, they'll move on. But elephants, for whatever reason, they're just, I think they're just so curious. They want to get inside of it and see what's in the steel box. And can I play with it? And can I eat it? And I, yeah. Sometimes and, I think they're just messing with me. but.
0: And elephants are are highly intelligent as well.
1: Yes, they are. Okay. I don't know. I wish I knew what they thought about these cameras that I've put. Sometimes I think they know that they're cameras, given how amazing the selfies are that they're taking with them, but I'm sure they Elephant don't. selfies. <laughs> yes.
0: That's great. Okay, well, we're almost out of time, so if is there anything else that you just want to mention before we go off?
1: I don't think so. I think we covered a lot of ground.
0: Okay, great. Thank you, Caitlin, for coming on the show today.
1: Thanks, Eric. It was great to talk to you.
0: It was great to talk to you. You're listening to The Graduates on KALX Berkeley. My name is Eric Sathy, and I was joined today on the show by Caitlin Gaynor from the Department of Environmental Science, Policy, and Management here at Berkeley. And she was talking about her research on human-wildlife coexistence. In two weeks, we'll be back with another episode of The Graduate.